focused our attention on grace this morning. I invite you to open with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 15. Job chapter 15. We've been making and journeying our way through the book of Job together, verse by verse, and uh, we have followed the same order except for one sermon when we skipped out of order to get to where we wanted to go for Easter Sunday, and we saw that Job there said, I know my Redeemer lives. But this morning, we are still in order as we plan to do for the rest of our journey through this book, and today we find ourselves in chapter 15. We're actually going to be looking at chapter 15, 16, and 17, and understanding what Job and his friends are dialoguing about there. You know, in our evening services together, we have been exploring, in part, the early chapters of the book of Genesis. And there in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, we see mankind plunging into the depths of despair as a result of their sin. But I have news for you. When Adam and Eve fell into sin and doomed their children to sorrow and suffering through the relentlessness of evil, even then, God knew that he was going to save his children. In fact, God knew not only that he wanted to, he desired to, but he knew how. He had a plan. God had a plan to save mankind from the moment of the creation of the world, actually. However, despite the fact that the plan was fully formed in the mind of God to the smallest detail, because God is God, God revealed it only a little at a time through the centuries, through his prophets. And the prophets had a limited knowledge of this coming Savior. The prophets had a dim and distant knowledge of the truth that we find housed and unfolded the mysteries of the gospel in the New Testament. And that light that they had, though dim, would grow brighter and brighter across the centuries. We've looked at the book of Job, and we've called it God in the dark. And we see that Job had a a dim but distant understanding. Numbers 24 would say it this way. I see him. I do see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. It was a dim and distant to the prophetic eye at that point. But as the time drew nearer, the light drew clearer. The prophets were given bigger and bigger pieces of the mystery to write down and ponder. And this brings us to the study and continued study of the book of Job. We don't know when Job fits into the unfolding picture of the narrative of Scripture. It seems to many scholars that Job came at the very early stages of this, We do know that this is the oldest book of the Bible, at least the oldest recorded book of the Bible. As such, Job's knowledge of the coming Savior and the life and light he would bring was somewhat limited. So Job went through his sufferings, all of the ones we read about, yearning for things we know much clearer now as it's been unfolded to us in the New Testament. Paul would talk about it this way in Ephesians 1. He made known to us, speaking of us who now live in this time where the New Testament's been recorded, the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. And the difference between our journey and Job's journey really comes down to then a matter of perspective. For us, the accomplishments and achievements of Jesus are in the past and perfectly recorded in the pages of the New Testament. For Job, and the other prophets who walked the globe during the time of Job, the accomplishments and achievements of Jesus were something he longed for, 
but had not yet happened. And one of those things which we have seen more clearly than Job is Jesus' role as our heavenly witness, our heavenly advocate, our heavenly intercessor, or our heavenly friend. Job yearned for this. He pleads for this. He looked towards this, but it was yet distant in his eyes. And we now today get to look at Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of what the Old Testament saints, including Job, were yearning for. There's a a light, you see, that Job is longing to glimpse. He references it in Job 16, verse 19. And now, he says in verse 19 of chapter 16, Behold, my witness is in heaven. My record is on high. My friends scorn me, but mine eye poureth out tears unto God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleadeth for his neighbor. You know, whenever individuals purchase a high-quality diamond from a jeweler, the jeweler will lay out a black velvet cloth and sprinkle the various diamonds available to buy on that black velvet cloth. And the purpose of that cloth is actually to allow the glitter of the light to shine off those giant diamonds radiantly. In fact, the black is there to really showcase the diamond that they want you to buy. That's the way we look at Job 15 verses, chapter 15 to chapter 17. There is a glittering diamond in this passage that is housed in Job 16 verses 19 through 21 that we just read. But that diamond is surrounded by darkness. It's surrounded by blackness. It's very important to note as we study the book of Job that it can be easy to read this book and skip over the weighty and dark dialogues and hasten to the diamonds. It would be easier for me to just say, all right, let's look at the wonderful truths housed in this book, like the ones we just read in chapter 16, verses 19 to 21, and others like where Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, and, and skip past the weighty, dark dialogues of Job and his friends. But this is inspired with Scripture. And the dark dialogues actually serve as the black velvet backdrop on which the diamonds shine even brighter. We should not think, then, that God only wants us to look at glittering diamonds. God also wants us to observe the darkness around here. God wants us to understand the black cloth as well as the black times. It's good for us to see how Job spoke in the midst of his blackness. God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen to let this education of evil become the black backdrop on which the diamond of his truth rests ever shiningly through the ages. Now we'll be venturing down a path together in this sermon this morning. As I begin, I implore you to stay with me. I'll try to serve as your guide on the road. Because as we venture on this path, we'll venture into blackness, dark, contrasting blackness. As we venture in this blackness, we will conclude with a diamond that I trust will shine brightly in our faces. But first, let me be your tour guide in the blackness. Let me not be your tour guide. Rather, let the scriptures be the tour guide that we may find in this blackness a diamond, we could say, in the rough. Let's consider the dark process of the trial. 
There has been an incredible spiral of unending pain in the book of Job. We're in chapter 15 at this point. And in chapter 15 in the book of Job, we've already seen, we've already witnessed Job suffering emotionally and physically. But in chapter 15, he highlights two kinds of suffering. This darkness that he's now traversed is difficult horizontally towards his friends, actually. Job, at this point, has become utterly disgusted by his friends. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. I have heard many such things of you, your friends, that you have talked to me. And look how he calls them. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall vain words have no end? Or what emboldeth you that you continue to speak? Job is basically saying, will your long speeches never come to an end? What ails you that you keep arguing? What an incredible statement he calls them. Miserable comforters. There is comfort is actually shredding Job. And Job chides them directly for their demeanor towards him. He says in verse 3 of chapter 16, I also could speak as you do. If I were in your place, I could join words together against you and and shake my head at you. I, I could do what you are doing to me if I was in your shoes. Job is saying if the roles were reversed, he would actually do a much, much better job than they are doing. He would actually be a better friend than the kind of friends they have been to him. Verse 5, I would actually strengthen you with my mouth. My words would be encouragement. And the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. In other words, I would probably be better at what you're doing than you are. Now what brought all of those statements from Job in chapter 16? Well, we have begun chapter 15 this morning. And as we do so, I want you to understand the outline of the book of Job as it's unfolded to us. Many would look at the book of Job as a narrative, and it is. It is a portion of narrative. But actually, it's a book of poetry housed on either side by narrative. In the beginning chapters, we see the narrative of the book of Job, where Job is described as going through these. And we actually get a a glimpse into the throne room of God's kingdom. And we see God dialoguing with the devil, and we see this dialogue unfold, and God actually presents Job as this one who is perfect and upright and eschews evil. And he says to the devil, have you considered my servant Job? And in chapter 1, we see the devil allowed to inflict on Job incredible pain, including the loss of all of his wealth and, more painfully, the loss of all of his children. Of course, the devil does this to prove that Job is only serving God because of what God gives him, or to prove that God purchases worshipers. And the devil doesn't prove his point, does he? So he comes back in chapter 2, and he says, well, the only reason it's still, he's only still worshiping you because you haven't let me touch his body. And then so in chapter 2, we see the narrative of God allowing the devil to inflict pain upon Job's body. But then we begin in chapter 3, a series of poetry, and it can be long and monotonous. It's actually a cycle of three speeches, arguments you could call them, between Job and his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Those speeches began in chapter 3, and they took us first cycle all the way to chapter 14. And so today in chapter 15, we're beginning that second cycle of speeches. That second cycle will begin in chapter 15 and take us all the way to chapter 21. And then there's another repeated cycle in chapter 22 to chapter 31. And you ask, what's the difference in their dialogue? And the answer is... Nothing, actually. They continue to say the same things over and over. And so it's no wonder now, at the beginning of the second cycle of speeches, this time, Bill Eliphaz speaks again, and Job says to his friend Eliphaz, and 
in like fashion to his other friends in chapter 16, you are miserable comforters. In other words, you are saying the same thing again. It's been no help to me before. Why do you think it's going to be a help to me again? And we're now entering the second cycle of speeches. And all three of Job's friends have already spoken, and Job has answered. And now Eliphaz speaks for a second time in chapter 15. And the first time Eliphaz spoke, his basic presupposition, which is one that is shared by all of his friends, was that you reap what you sow. In other words, Job is evil. That's why he's reaping evil. Job is suffering because of his sin. And now look in chapter 15. Eliphaz speaks in verse 1. Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue with unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? Now I highlight that because can you see what Eliphaz is doing and what, what Job is doing? In chapter 15, Eliphaz says, Job, you are just full of hot air. That's what you are. You're just full of hot air. And look what Job says back to Eliphaz in chapter 16. Eliphaz, you are just full of hot air. That's exactly what he says. Eliphaz basically rebukes Job for saying nothingness, and Job turns it around and rebukes Eliphaz for saying nothingness. And he is seeking in his speech, Eliphaz is, to actually humble Job. And there's a difference between trying to humble someone and teach on humility. And it's a profound difference in Scripture. Being one that tries to humble someone is certainly not what God has us to do. But what, look what he says in chapter 7. Are you the first man who was born of chapter 15 of verse 7? Or you, were you, Job, brought forth before the, before the hills? Have you listened to the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we don't know? Now, both Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and Job have a, a stern, we could say, talking to one another. Basically, who do you think you are, Job, to talk like this? Like the other friends, Eliphaz assumes he is correct and Job is wrong. And in chapter 15, verses 30 to, or 20 to 35, Eliphaz will actually trace out the doom that the godless people can expect. If you are evil, you can expect this. And he implicitly applies that doom and gloom to Job. He says in verse 20, the wicked man writhes in his pain all of his days. Basically, Job, why are you in pain? You are wicked. And as you can see, Eliphaz is getting much more aggressive in his second speech than he was in his first, even though he's saying the same thing as his first. He is calling Job a massive sinner, a wicked, evil doer. Before we go any further, I want to acknowledge something. Anyone who has spent time with a suffering friend knows how hard it is to remain present in that suffering without trying to give answers. It's excruciating to suffer silently with a friend who must rebuild their life piece by piece without any certainty about the outcome. And our instinct as humans is to investigate the cause, find the leak, plug the leak, and get back to normal as soon as possible. And we assume that knowing the cause will allow us to avoid the fate ourselves. We would rather give a reason for the suffering even if that reason is wrong, than to accept that we don't know why the suffering has happened. And Job's friends have succumbed to that very temptation. It would be foolish to imagine that we are not Eliphaz's. How much harm have well-intentioned Christians caused 
by giving pious-sounding answers to suffering misapplied. Even though they have no idea what they're talking about, they still think they have to give an answer. They'll say, it's all for the best, right? It's part of God's plan. God never sends people more adversity than they can handle, which sounds good but isn't biblical. How arrogant to imagine that we know God's mind. How foolish to think we know the reason for anyone else's suffering. And yet that's exactly what Eliphaz is doing. And the pain it causes Job is incredible. It actually plummets him further into darkness. Even though I believe Eliphaz and the others were actually seeking to help Job, not hurt. Let me ask you, how often have in your counsel you have sought to be the spiritual guru, the know-it-all, the pastor in the situation that none of us are, including myself? Friend, be careful that your counsel doesn't lead to more darkness. You know what's more helpful, more hope-filled? Acknowledging that you as counselor are not God and pointing the counselee to the one who actually is. Here he says, this darkness, it, it, it's difficult. It brings a horizontal darkness, but it actually becomes a vertical darkness as well. If he takes Eliphaz's counsel, he must assume God is the one causing all of this. You ever heard that trials come in threes? You ever heard that? Maybe you've experienced that as well. After addressing his friends again, Job now turns his complaint, and he, at times, he tries to fit Eliphaz's counsel into the scriptural dialogue, and he begins to basically say, if this is true, God is the one that has caused all of this. He actually says, well, well God, Job says, it has devastated my house, verse 7 of chapter 16. Surely God now has worn me out. He has made desolate all of my company, Job's friends understand, as Job does as well, all of, of Job's ten children are dead. His wife has been destroyed by this, as you can imagine she would be. His family life has been, uh, been destroyed. Did Job have a good and godly family before these trials? Absolutely he did. These are not sinning children. God, he thinks, then has assaulted him. Job says, God has assaulted my body through disease, verse 8. He has shriveled me up which is a witness against me. Job's friends couldn't recognize him, you remember, when they came upon him. Because of the disease that so had afflicted his body, they couldn't even recognize their friend. He says, God has attacked me as he would an enemy, verse 8. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed at his teeth with me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Who is he speaking of? This is speaking of God. He looks on God as an opponent. But this is not horizontal, but vertical as well. People have hated him. Look what he says in verse 10. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. This is wave upon wave of suffering. Verse 14, he breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. Job is lost in the pain of his suffering. He is weeping and wailing. He is searching for answers. And look at verse 15. My face is red with weeping. My eyelids is a deep darkness. This is where we go when we allow ourselves to plummet the trail of darkness, don't we? I wonder how many here have been there. 
They know what it is to almost cry every tear out of their body. They know what it is to have the emotional turmoil of horizontal relationships ruined by counsel that has been misapplied. And now as the friend's speeches continue through the book, their rhetoric becomes increasingly hostile towards Job, and Job feels it. He is enveloped in darkness. And he's looking for just a glimmer, a hope, a light. And in the darkness, he considers a more pressing problem. Consider the judicial dilemma of trial. All of the darkness we just outlined has happened to an innocent man. Remember what God said about Job and repeated three times in the opening chapters? This is a perfect man. This is a good man. This is a man who has shewed evil. And Job, while he may have been tempted to believe that he was a sinner as he was counseled by his friends, he acknowledges still in verse 17, there is no violence in my hand and my prayer is pure. Job cries out for vindication in his suffering. Verse 18, O earth, cover not my blood and let my cry find no resting place. The basic accusation Job has towards God is injustice. This is the very thing God is going to bring back to him when he speaks from the whirlwind later. This is a repeated theme of Job's speech, and he brings it up over and over until he comes to a conclusion at the end of the book. And his his argument is this, I am good. Why is bad happening to me? Ever wondered that? An article appeared in the Kentucky newspaper which read this. I used to think I was poor. Then they told me I wasn't poor, I was needy. Then they told me it was self-defeating to think of myself as needy. Instead, I am to be considered culturally deprived. Then they told me deprived was a bad image. Instead, I should consider myself to be underprivileged. Then they told me underprivileged was overused. I was actually disadvantaged. I still don't have a dime, but I have a great vocabulary. You know, in the book of Job, we see a central character wrestling through the issues of frustrations, and that's the kind of counsel he's getting from his friends. A bunch of nothing. Word salads, I guess. And we're still just tracing out the black cloth against which the diamond will be glittering, and it's very tough, isn't it? It's very difficult. And Job continues in chapter 17 by saying that death, actually death, is his only hope. Because after all, if this is the all there is, if this is all the darkness and blackness of this world, what hope, what reason is there to stay alive? None of these words have brought Job any comfort, so why live anymore? He says in chapter 17, my spirit is broken, my days are extinct, the graveyard is ready for me. By the way, this is now over 10 times that Job has repeated this theme, that death is his only outlet. This is a deep and bitter lament. Job is completely shattered by what has happened to him. Everything he has ever set his heart on in this world has been ripped from him violently. Verse 7 of chapter 17, My eye has grown dim from vexation. All of my members are like a shadow. What else is there to hope for? More camels to be given to Job, a sign of wealth. They can just be taken away. They could die. More children? He's already experienced the travesty of death. 
Another child would only remind him himself, he thinks, of the possibility that he may have to bury another child. Health? Even if he could get better, his ailments could still come back. There, there is actually, he thinks, nothing in this world worth living for. Job has lost all of his taste of, taste of life. His friends may try to give him hope, but they are only giving hope by minimizing the pain of his trial. And it offers to him no consolation, verse 12 of chapter 17. They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to darkness. Come on, you can be happy. His friends are trying to say there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but Job says, honestly, the only thing I have left to look forward to is being dead. Verse 15, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall it descend with me into to the dust? The only home Job hopes for is the grave. Did you know every wise man in Scripture who has reflected on the trials and travesties of life has come to the same frustrating conclusion by themselves? Apart from God, there is nothing worth living for. In fact, Solomon looked at it not from the, from the trial of oppression to make that conclusion, but Solomon actually concluded that from the lofty penthouse of rejoicing. The Bible tells us that Solomon had everything there was possible to have at that time right at his fingertips. Not only did he have it, he had it in abundance. And his conclusion was the same conclusion Job had when Job had all that stuff ripped away from him. Because you might be thinking, okay, well, Job is thinking that because he doesn't have anything. If he had money, if he had pleasures, he wouldn't think that there's only the grave left to live for. If he had something to fun to have, if he had money, if he could buy stuff, he would want to live. And Solomon had all of that, and he had the same conclusion. Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes. Again, I look and I saw the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors. They have no comfort. I have no comfort. I have nothing worth living for. Now, inside each of us is an inner voice which tells us that things should be fair, but they're not. And that's why we have referees in sports and judges in courtrooms we have an innate sense, don't we, of right and wrong. And we serve a God of the universe who tells us there is a right and there is a wrong. But we see oppression. We feel tragedy. We know what it is to sorrow. And each side, each of us, is an inner voice crying out and saying, that's not right. That shouldn't be happening. How could we possibly fix the injustices of life? And as we consider it, there's a gripping pain. There's a judicial dilemma. There should be a judge, right? There should be a judge who's right and righteous and says this is wrong and this is right. And he rewards the righteous and punishes the evildoers. But we look around and we see oligarchs who are evil, doing evil, parading in evil, and we say, that's not right. This is dark. And it is dark, isn't it? It's a very dark backdrop. I mean, it is good to have these words. They are recorded for us in Scripture. But if I said, all right, close your Bibles, let's pray, you can go home and enjoy your lunch, you'd say, that, give us more. That cannot be all there is. 
That's why I said at the beginning, and now I repeat. We get to look at Jesus today as the perfect fulfillment of what these Old Testament believers were yearning for. And let's consider the diamond of hope in this trial. Job's speech has been woven with threads of black. But seen from above, we see that Job has been weaving a beautiful picture of our Savior. Look again at the end of chapter 16. Read again the diamond in the rough. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My friends are my scoffers. My eyes weep to God. That one might plead for a man with God as a son of man with his neighbor. In other words, as a friend. Again and again, Job speaks words in this book with prophetic insight that I believe he may not yet fully understand, but he immediately, because he immediately laps back into the blackness of depression, even in the next verses. So what we could read here is God in his spirit moving Job to say some things that bring him much comfort at that time, it seems, but bring us lots of comfort as we look back on it now. It's a matter of perspective. Job now speaks of his need for an advocate. I wish there was someone who I could talk to that has access to God in God's throne room, who I could explain my case, who I could cry out to, who I could say, this is not fair, life is just full of darkness. I wish there was someone, not these friends, someone else who I could speak to like a friend who has an advocacy before the actual creator of all. I wish there was someone like that. And he's actually repeated this. He says the same thing in chapter 9. For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him. That we may go to court together. God is not like me. At the time, he considers it dark. There is no arbiter between me, between us, who can place his hands upon us both. Now, as a Christian, you read this verse, and you cannot help but view the beautiful words of our Lord. This is a very important principle concerning the inspiration of the Bible. It has to do with how we have our scriptures and how God moved through human instruments to speak and write words they didn't understand at the time, so that future generations may, may read and understand who Christ is. This is openly taught by Peter. He says this in 1 Peter 1, verse 10. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know that a person or time, at a pers- that a person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves. It was revealed to the prophets that they were not serving themselves. But you, speaking of those that are now reading this from Peter, and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, it was revealed to the prophets that they were not speaking for themselves, but to those who would come later, specifically those who would have the gospel preached to them by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which the angels even long to look at. 1 Peter 1, verse 12. In simple words, the Old Testament prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit 
to record a glimmering light that the Holy Spirit himself would shine forth. Second Peter, he says in chapter 1, verse 20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made, no prophecy was ever made of human will. They didn't just make this up. But men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. The Old Testament prophets said things about Christ, his sufferings, his glory, that they didn't understand yet because they hadn't seen it. But it was revealed to them that they would understand that, and others would after them see it. The clearest example of this is Daniel 12, where Daniel writes a whole bunch of visionary things down and says to God, I don't understand. And Daniel is then told to seal up the scroll. Why? Because this is for a later generation, Daniel. And they will understand it. So it is here, Job says, things that he may not yet fully understand, but we with the full revelation of the New Testament can look back on and, and say, what a diamond is this? What a glory is this? Jesus is our intercessor, advocate, and friend. The very thing that in the blackest of darkness Job could cry out for, Jesus is all of that perfectly. 1 John 2, verse 1, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Job would ask, Who can bring a righteous thing out of an unrighteous thing? 1 John answers, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Job would ask, Oh, that there was an arbiter between us. I don't see one. Timothy would say, Jesus Christ is that one. Hebrews 8, verse 6, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Job acknowledged in his trials he needed someone who would stand for him. He couldn't do it. He was a sinner. His friends couldn't do it. Their theology was misplaced. Who was he supposed to cry out to? I have a name for you. Jesus. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. This is God's rod removed. His terror no longer frightens us as it did before. Did Job completely understand that? Not fully. But he receives the benefits of it, of it based on the mediating work of Christ, Jesus. He was saved by Jesus just like all the other Old Testaments were saved. Just like you will be saved by Jesus if you would just look to Jesus. I'm thinking that a recently engaged woman doesn't look at her diamond ring once, does she? I'm thinking she looks at it a lot, right? I'm thinking she glances at it. She, she shows it off to her friends. It, it means a lot to her. We've explored a dark cloth, haven't we? All so that we can place a diamond on that cloth and let it radiate. Let it shine around the room for a moment. Here's what Job says. Also now, behold my witnesses in heaven. 
My record is on high, verse 19 of chapter 16. My friends scorn me, but mine eye poureth out tears unto God. Oh, that one might plead for man with God, as a man pleads with his neighbor. We'll extend this now beyond any comprehension Job could have had about this ministry of Jesus Christ. Notice what Job says in verse 19. Even now. That might have been the sweetest work of the Holy Spirit on a suffering saint we see in the book of Job. He knew this. Even now. No, Job didn't fully understand, but Job knew. What did Job want? What did Job want? Job wanted a witness in heaven. Job wanted someone to advocate for righteousness. Job wanted someone to testify that his friend's counsel wasn't actually true. Job wanted someone to present the evidence that he might be vindicated. Job wanted an intercessor who would actually weep with him. Job wanted someone who would weep with him just as he was weeping. Now I understand that verse 20 has different translations. It either speaks more of the same that he plainly says in verse 21, Job wishes to have a friend or advocate for him, or verse 20 speaks about his earthly friends that are terrible, with friends like that who needs enemies, basically. Regardless, the point is plain and even strengthened no matter what interpretation you take of verse 20. Job wants someone who will be a real friend in heaven. That's what he wants. And now we turn with our hearts full to understand the ministry of Jesus Christ as our great high priest. This we get from the book of Hebrews. I actually invite you to turn with me there. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And as we turn, it's hard for me to understate how indispensable the book of Hebrews is in your canon of Scripture. The things, some of the things Hebrews tells us about Jesus are not so clearly taught anywhere else in Scripture. Hebrews unlocks a divine mystery. And we have been taught in the book of Hebrews an answer to Job's quandary in the darkness. Jesus is that great high priest. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Dwell on those words, merciful and faithful. This is Jesus, our great high priest. Stay in Hebrews and go to chapter 5. Chapter five, verse, or chapter 4, first of all, verse 14. Chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Who is that, by the way? Oh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's hold firmly to our confession. Nothing wavering. We have our answer. This is a theme continued and repeated. Go to chapter 5. So, too, Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but it was he who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Today I have fathered you. Just as he has always said in another passage, and he quotes an Old Testament passage, another of the prophets who was given a glimpse, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, and boy, if we only had more time to explore what is fully meant. What are Jesus' credentials? Can he truly be this? Jesus is perfect in holiness. 
He is perfect, first of all, in compassion. He is the friend that Job sought for. Oh, he says in chapter 16, verse 21, if I could plead to a man as a man pleads for his neighbor. Oh, if there was one who was compassionate towards me. Oh, if there was one who could take a, an unclean thing and make it right. Only a holy one could do that, and Jesus is holy. He is an eternal unchanging God. Jesus, having died, can never die again. Jesus, having risen, he'll be risen forever. Did you know we are talking about the same Jesus, the same God that occupied the meditations of Job in the darkest corners of his life? Same God. And if God doesn't return for another thousand years, and this church is still here, may it still preach about the same Jesus, because he didn't change. And we have perfect access to this God because Jesus is actually somewhere. He is sitting right at the right hand of Almighty God. And friend, did you know you get to talk to him right now? You can. Say, but I, man, I, I, I don't know if I can orate and pray as others. May you never misunderstand prayer to be some special oration that you must read with a bead in your hand. Prayer is talking to a compassionate, holy, unchanging God who wants to hear the petitions of your heart. You have that access. This room is closed during the week because you don't need a priest. You already have a perfect high priest. And he offers a perfect sacrifice. It's his own blood. And it's a complete fulfillment of what Job longed for. A diamond in the darkness. May I introduce you to him? Do you know this man, Jesus? Here, here is that God shining in the dark. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we are reminded of the grip of pain from this world. So often I think our pulpits are full of happiness and joy and rejoice in the Lord and all of those things that we forget. Just the weight of how much lament is found in Scripture. Lord, this is a broken world. May we not forget that. May we allow actually the brokenness of this world to point us to the only light-giving source, Jesus Christ. There may be some in this room who have never accepted Christ as your Savior. Lord, today we have learned through song about grace. We have learned through testimony about the change that grace brings. And Lord, we now learn from Job the need for grace. Lord, may if there are any in this room who have never accepted Christ, may today be the day of their salvation. With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you join with me in standing? The instruments are going to begin to play. The song they're playing is entitled, My Hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Lord, we have been able to look back at an Old Testament prophet who looked forward to a New Testament truth. May you come to accept Christ. If you've never accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, may today be the day of your salvation.